This is the best of the Jewish views. Over the next hour, we look back at some of the highlights of 2016. We'll feature our favorite guests and our memorable discussions. In this episode, we make up for the lack of Hanukkah in the square, Eurovision Legendana International, and the exhibition that demonstrated how instrumental Jews are in the rag trade. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views, and indeed the last one for 2016. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start straight away and get into one of the more memorable moments over the last year. We're cheating ever so slightly with our first interview, because technically speaking, this came from 2015's programmes. However, you may recall that there is no Hanukkah in the square this year because of the colliding with Christmas Day. And it simply means that it's not possible to organise such an event. However, we thought that we would relive the 2015 Hanukkah in the square. And amongst the people that we spoke to when we were there was the chief rabbi Ephraim Mervis. I started by asking if he could explain how he felt about attending an event like Hanukkah in the square. This evening, I have a great sense of pride. Pride in our opportunity to express our Judaism in public. Pride in the fact that so many thousands of people have come in this inclement weather in order to celebrate their Judaism here. We're uh, proud citizens of this great city, and uh, it's a fantastic feeling. And with events like Hanukkah in the Square, I think one of the things that was going through everybody's mind was the sense of security. Do you fear for the security of of our community? Or or do you think that we just need to, as it were, not let the bad guys win, I guess? It's wonderful for us here in Trafalgar Square, this most iconic location here in London, to come out and to celebrate our Judaism. And I think uh, we're exceptionally fortunate to have this opportunity. Uh, and it's brilliant to see so many people here having a great time. And more importantly, are you having a good time? Absolutely. Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis describing the feeling of being at Hanukkah in the Square for 2015. Well, to carry on making up for the lack of it, let's now hear from the former mayor of London, Boris Johnson. News editor from the Jewish News, Justin Cohen, spoke to him and he asked him how he felt the festivities were going. I, may, I don't think I've seen so, Trafalgar Square so packed as it is tonight with uh, people celebrating Hanukkah and uh, very good. I think these are the Maccabees who are now playing and you know it's a great, great event. I've done it every year for eight years and I, as I've always promised, I think possibly to you and others, that I would go to Jerusalem and uh, we finally kept that promise and it was the most wonderful trip. Absolutely fascinating and I think one of, one of the things it underscored for me was the huge connections between London and Jerusalem and London and Israel and the amazingly vibrant uh, tech sector that they've got there and all the, uh, all the ways that we're cooperating on uh, financial services and many other things. Boris, I wanted to ask you, you, you stood up for Israel uh, during your time in Israel. Will you continue to do that after, your ma- after you finish the mayoralty? I can assure you that I've been, if you consult my record, I, I, you know, I, I first spoke in favour of the state of Israel having uh, the age of about 18, I think at the 
so look, I, I'm a, I'm a, I, I think that you know, there, it's, it's obviously it's complicated, and there are there are difficult questions on both sides. But in the end, Israel is a massive, massive, uh, positive force in the world, and, and you've got to, you people have got to understand that. And uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, yes, of course, I will continue to stand up for Israel and for my beliefs. Okay, just finally, uh, the Tel Aviv in London festival that you were a, a major driving force behind. Uh, what do you think that's going to bring to London when it happens in 2017? I, I hope it will be a wonderful event, and uh, alas, I won't be, you know, absolutely instrumental to the. Well, I've, I've been instrumental to it. It's a, it's a happening, but I won't be the. I won't be uh, leading it, unfortunately. But I wish everybody a fantastic uh, Tel Aviv festival. It's going, you know, listen, Tel Aviv is going gangbusters. I was very interested in what's happening in that city, and I much enjoyed my time with Ron Holdai, the mayor of Tel Aviv, a really good guy. Um, you know, in many ways a man after my own heart. I thought he had a lot of a lot of uh, stuff he was doing that I really approved of. Um, you know, I think the more people understand, the, the more they get to know each other, the less prejudice there is. That's what I'm interested in. Which is a good way of showing people the real Israel. Yes, of course. And look, every, you know, I, everybody wants a solution to the uh, Palestinian question. Everybody, you know, I want that sorted out. But so does every Israeli. In the end, we want we want peace, and that's got to be that's got to be the objective. Former Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, talking to news editor Justin Cohen there about his delegation to Israel and also, more importantly, about Hanukkah in the Square itself and how he thought it was going. We just thought we'd remind ourselves of that, especially as there will not be Hanukkah in the Square for 2016. Moving on, though, in other news, we also got the chance this year to speak to Eurovision legend Dana International. Well, I got the chance to speak to her and I asked her, did she get tired of always being asked about her Eurovision win? Of course, I get sick of it, not just tired. (laughs) I got sick of it, yeah. So what, everywhere you go, people always say, oh, you're Donna from Eurovision, despite your amazing career. It's not like that. It's like, you know, once you win the Eurovision, you have a a wonderful year, but it also comes with, with a curse, you know. You stay only within the Eurovision world and no one allows you to spread out and, you know to continue with your career. It's it's just like people want to hear the song you've won with, and that's all. When you won Eurovision, take us back to that moment. What did it feel like when you did win? Oh, I felt gorgeous. I can't describe it, you know. You have to be in my foot to to understand it. It's like a divine uh, experiment. I don't know how to explain it. It never happened to me again since that winning gorgeous feeling um, countless happiness you know I was so happy and would you say that it's it's helped music career rather than hindered it though surely of course it has because you know a lot of countries invite me to festivals and concerts and I've seen many so many places around the world yeah I'm not complaining I'm just uh, being thankful and what's your favorite place you've traveled to so far mm, Canarian Islands Wrong answer. Anyway, <laughs> how many times? Absolutely prefer London. How many times have you been to London, and do you do you enjoy when you come here? I used to live here for six months. I've been here at least twenty times on and off. And does it get better every time, or not? Well, uh, depend. It, I like the politeness of the people. I like the the atmosphere. But if I want to catch a lover boy, it's better for me to find it in Berlin or in Barcelona. <laughs> And do you find that when you do come 
to places such as London, the welcome is always warm. You d- you've no complaints. You're happy when you're here. Yeah, you know, it's a continental city. It's a, even if you don't mean it, the 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 English, uh, the British, they have their ways of being polite, even if they don't mean it. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, hopefully, I'm being polite so far. When when you first made it big time, you know, people often said that that you were an inspiration because of of what you went through growing up uh, and, and all that you went through with recognizing that you're transgender and all of that. Do you still get people saying how you've inspired them on that front? I don't like to inspire anyone about my sexuality. I think it's individual. It's a very private decision and no one can look at uh, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> And obviously you are here tonight to perform in celebration of Yom Hotzmurtz. And, and what is it that you love about Israel? Well, I like the atmosphere. I like that uh, they let me be who I want to be and they accept me, which is a very big paradox. You know, it's a very holy land and full of orthodox, but at the same time, very liberal and tolerant. And I just love my country. <laughs> and what about this evening? You know, you, you do you ever get nervous still performing in front of the crowds? No. <laughs> well, I suppose once you've performed in front of Eurovision crowd, anything goes really, anything is small. Eurovision, it's different because you're being uh, uh, judged. Yeah. You can win, either win or lose. Here you are just uh, performing, making people feel, uh, have fun and uh, like friends, like family. And how long are you in London for? Two days. Go oh, two days and that's it? Yeah. Where's next? I have a big party in Stockholm after the Eurovision. <laughs> Do you ever relax? Do you ever get time off? Are you always busy, always on the move? Mm, generally, in, around uh, July, I'm in Spain for a whole month, you know, for the sun and everything. To anyone listening, obviously people are going to be celebrating Yom Hotzman in their own way. What would you say to them? Be happy, accept everyone, don't hate, just love. Eurovision legend Dana International talking to me there about her performance at the ZF's Yom Ha'atzma'ut celebrations. Well, let's carry on with that entertainment theme, shall we? And who better to take over than entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton? She got the chance to speak to many a great name in the entertainment world this year. And one of them was Dan Kaner, musician and, of course, a bit of a comedian at the same time as well. Kate started by asking Dan how would he best describe the work he does? Well, I have found this little sort of niche, a shtick, if you like, of I write stories in song about the Jewish world and my experiences of being Jewish in that world, both in the Jewish world, actually, and also being sort of outside, kind of torn between the two, not quite sure where I belong, like a sort of wandering Jew. And I sort of make comments about what I see. And I do a lot of stories about my family as well. And these are all kind of quite they're in the long form song format which is quite unusual and that's how I tell stories and uh, make my observations within these stories in these kind of long songs so it's really about your life and about your experiences that yes. you put to music it's entirely about that I mean at heart I'm effectively a sort of singer-songwriter is what a bit it's kind of slightly glorified in the sense that it's a bit more theatrical than that but yes and that's what the what I basically write from my heart in fact the process of writing really starts ironically with a sort of a bit of a prayer like what if what what, what do you want me to write to some 
you know, whatever that thing is that we might call that. And this is what sort of tumbles out of these stories, you know, largely about quite a lot of family history. And more recently with this new work, uh, which is in the newest show called 21st Century Jew, more sort of current observations about how I feel about the Jewish world. And I have found, well, the old adage about writing what you know, well, being more personal, actually, there's not to be scared of it because, in fact, the more personal you are, surprisingly, if, you, if you're good at it, the more universal you are. And presumably the more authentic you sound. Well, I think authenticity is, is the most important part of it. And I think that it, you know, sometimes I get a bit surprised and when I get described as being a comedian because I happen to do stuff that is a bit funny, but largely it's, it's I, call, I call them serious songs that happen to be funny. But really it's about the sort of expression of feeling and, uh, you know, I have a sense of humour and that comes out too. And you're saying you talk about things that happened in your life. What was your what, what was your background? Well, my background was we were brought up as a sort of relatively from traditional family. In we lived just near Long Ditton, just outside, sort of near Kingston, southwest suburb, southwest London. My parents were actually both from the north, and they ran away from their parents and ended up there. So we were brought up in that sort of very regular, sort of ordinary. We we. We'd do Kiddush on a Friday night. We'd go to Shul and Shabbos. We would, we you know, do all those things. We wouldn't work. We wouldn't, we wouldn't drive, obviously, on uh, Shabbos apart from to go to Shul, of course. And then, uh, well, that's what so that's what we did. We we were a traditional Jewish family, as my as my father's side had been. My uh, though my mother was from a Reformed Jewish background. Is it lonely performing on your own and writing on your own? And how do you how do you kind of draw from other people? Well, I don't find the performing part of it lonely. I find the afterwards part lonely. Writing, yes, it is. It's intense. I, I, actually, I really hate the process of writing. Um, I write. I like having written, <laughs> but I really don't like the actual doing of it. Apart from the occasional moments of aha, oh, that's good, or that's terrible. Uh, you know, and in fact, if you like the process of writing, as anybody that has to creatively produce something will know, whether it even be a, some kind of legal report or who goes what, but it's a constant battle between. Is that any good? Is it? Oh, that really is good. No, it isn't. Oh, you know, proofing yourself the inner critic. Well, we could go on for hours about about that. But ultimately, what comes out in the end is something that I generally am. Well, I'm, I'm pleased with when eventually it. I end up playing it and it falls. One of the difficult things about writing things that are funny, of course, is that you don't really know what's going to happen until you actually play it and you see actually how things land. One of that's one of the problems actually when you're doing recording material is that you tend to record it fairly soon after you've written it, and then after a number of plays out in the world, you have a much better idea about how to perform it. And of course, you've already done the recording, and so that's set in stone. You mentioned the show, which yes. I want to talk to you about. Obviously, what's that all about? And tell us a bit about the show itself. Well, the show is is what I did for I wrote it for the Edinburgh Fringe last year. And it is a, a sort of a version of that, and that was under the title "21st Century Jew." So it was a kind of follow-on from my previous incarnations of the shows, which we started. The original one was called Jewish Chronicles, actually, which I had to change for the. So I thought it was rather funny, but I changed it for the American market because they didn't get the joke. So that uh, we had to change it to Gefilte Fish and Chips for the American market because they understood that. That was more in that in that show. It was more 
personal stories and more family stories. This one has still got quite a lot of those in, new ones, but also a few more sort of more political observations. If no, I say political, I'm not really a political animal, but certainly observations about the Jewish world a little bit. I do a piece about marrying out, for example, which I think is a fairly a current hot topic. I even mention the thorny subject of, dare we say it, Israel, but only from uh, as, as a view from the radical middle. And how do they take it in Edinburgh? There are issues about that. I mean, hopefully this won't be a problem at uh, JW3. You have a friendly audience <laughs> there, I'll uh, Well, yes. Uh, so, that, so, so that's this show I'll be doing at JW3 on, on June the 29th. But we did this in... I, in Edinburgh, I play maybe, I guess, you know, 50% Jewish audience. Sometimes it's a, it's more than that. But most of the time, it's mostly non-Jewish people. Oh, but obviously, they're all reason- those that actually come into the show are reasonably well disposed towards the subject. So you're not getting heckled? No, I've, that's not really happened. But we've got heckled. I've been heckled outside. And in fact, the year before last in Edinburgh, there it was during the um, Gaza incursion. And if that's the right or the wrong word... And there was an awful lot of protests going on out there. In fact, you know, just my posters were defaced and there was lots of... Uh, in fact, th- th- it was largely to do with... The, uh, it's a separate issue, but there was a, another show in my particular venue in, in Edinburgh which was uh, being boycotted because it was funded by the Israeli Arts Council or equivalent of. So there was a lot of fuss about that. Eventually that actually got called off. So there was huge amounts of protests going on outside and it was very difficult for people trying to get into my show, trying to get into to others, passing through uh, you know, a very uh, irate crowd, let us say. And in Edinburgh the, the sort of pro-Palestinian lobby is extremely well sort of motivated and uh, you know, it's, it's and quite powerful. Is your show a family show yeah not I, I mean, blue no it's not a, no I don't do I don't, I don't do, do blue. blue in fact funnily enough I had a little encounter with Jackie Mason just recently in New York and he asked me the same, same question actually did I use um, cuss words he said and then proceeded to use one t- to me, <laughs> which is, and that's actually a song that I'm in the middle of writing. I should be talking about my rather interesting encounter with Jackie Mason in New York in that. But no, there's none of that. I mean, there's a couple of, of, of stories that, you know, talk about adult behaviour, if you like. But most of that goes over small children's heads. And in fact, it's a, it's a show about family. Of course, it's doing what families do. So I wouldn't, it's not for toddlers but there's nothing too offensive in it. There is, you know, it depends. I might do the one about the rabbi uh, that had a bit of a narcotics habit, or I might not. (laughs) Wait and see. Musician and performer Dan Kaner talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there. Now, one of the other things that we frequently ask Kate to do is go out and about to sample some of the more cultural delights that we can experience in the Jewish community. Kate went along to an exhibition at the Jewish Museum earlier in the year called Moses, Mods and Mr. Fish, and it was about Jews in the rag trade. Kate spoke to the curator Liz Selby, and she started by asking her where the name Moses, Mods and Mr. Fish came from. This exhibition covers 150 years of menswear history and we wanted to have a title which kind of covered the vast kind of breadth of that and we wanted to give it a bit of a Jewish flavour. So Moses stands for, it could be Moses Moses of Mosbros or it could be Elias Moses of E. Moses and Son and we've got mods which feature quite prominently in the story and then Mr Fish is just this amazing fashion designer and kind of retailer from the late 60s and 70s who a lot of people have fond memories of. So there's a long history of Jewish 
couture, if you like, or tailoring, the old-fashioned Schneider, the, the tailor. You imagine sort of sitting cross-legged. What does the exhibition actually cover? The exhibition actually looks at, it's more kind of high street, ready-to-wear fashion. So we're taking the story a bit further than just the tailoring workshops of the East End. We're looking at individuals and companies who really made a change on the high street. Elias Moses, he was the founder of E. Moses and Son, who were this really huge company in the 1850s who made ready-to-wear clothing for men. And crucially, they made it affordable and fashionable for working-class men. For the first time, working-class men could afford to buy new clothes. Moses Moses was the founder of Mossbros, who many people know because of their famous hire department that was founded in 1897 and still is still going today. Didn't they help some of the young boys, particularly, who came on various transports and they gave them their first suit? I've not actually heard that story. Really interesting if it's true. <laughs> it was, well, here's me telling you about yeah, the exhibition. Yeah. My father-in-law came over on a transport and he was given however many guineas or pounds of what it was, probably a few shillings actually, yeah. and told to, to go and buy a suit. And I think it was Moss Bros. Anyway, <laughs> just a, an interlude. Let's have a look at the exhibition itself. Over here, we've got the company Emoses and Son that I've just mentioned. And I think one of my favourite things in the exhibition is this design for a reversible waistcoat from 1849 and as you can see it's quite interesting you think of 19th century men's clothing as being quite dark and conservative but this is a waistcoat that E. Moses and Sons submitted this design to the Board of Trade in 1849 and you can see it's very brightly coloured one side is red one side is blue and you can decide to wear it which side you want. Yes and they're quite bright colours really aren't they? Yeah obviously very fashionable which as I mentioned E. Moses and Son were trying to make fashionable clothing for, for working-class men. It was the first time, perhaps, that they could actually afford to buy new clothing. I'm looking at a dinner suit here. It looks quite formal. This, this is what I imagine to be the more formal sort of higher wear. Is that right? Well, this is, a, this is a dress coat from probably around 1900. And this was made by Hyam & Co, who were, again, another company, a bit like Emos and Son, who were operating in the 19th century, making ready-to-wear clothing for men. And... This really symbolises the more formal kind of attire of the 19th century. But by this stage, by the time this was actually made, it would have been worn probably only for evening wear for formal occasions. And as you go through the exhibition, you see that clothing is becoming more informal. Men are starting to dress a bit differently. And once we get to the 60s, it becomes obviously much more colourful and much more flamboyant. And were these weather clothes were made? They were now taken out of what we used to think of as sweatshops or East End sort of small factories. Were the workers moved towards more towards West End or did they kind of still stay back? We don't focus so much on how the clothes were made. We do focus a little bit on the tailoring kind of workshops of the East End. And we've got, for example, a great strike poster from 1889 when tailors were trying to improve their working conditions. What's quite interesting is as as we move to the Burton story, Montague Burton, who founded Burton, he was very, very involved in trying to make conditions much better for workers. And he built these amazing, huge model factories where workers would have on-site health care. They had a huge canteen. They were able to listen to music as they worked. So we see kind of conditions improving quite a lot for certain companies. But obviously, 
how clothes are made is still a huge, huge issue in today's world as well. Now, of course, most manufacturing takes place outside of Britain. But yeah, it's a, something we should all be concerned with. And are most of these clothes they, the owners were, were Jews? Were most of them made by Jews? Were there still a lot of Jewish tailors? Most of the, the clothes are all from Jewish companies. They weren't necessarily worn by Jews. And what we've tried to do with the exhibition is show how these Jewish companies had this much broader impact on men's clothing. So as we go around the exhibition, we see how what the major developments were. And all along, there are Jewish companies who are quite pioneering in making those changes happen. And what are we looking at now? This is a suit that was made by Burton. It's from 1936, and it's probably one of my favourite objects in the exhibition. Um, it's a beautiful double-breasted pinstripe suit, and it says quite a lot about Burton's role for men. So by the 1930s, Burton was a huge, huge um, chain of shops. By 1939, they had 595 shops in Britain. They were a focal point of every single high street. And most men, particularly men perhaps of the lower classes, it would be a real rites of passage to go to Burton to get your first suit. How did the designers then, of those times, influence the high street stores? In what ways did the designs change? Well, we see changes taking place as we go through the exhibition. Some of them are quite subtle. What's quite interesting about this suit is that the design really emphasises the kind of masculine figure. So you can see the lapels are very wide, they're emphasising the chest, you can see the waist is quite fitted. And this is quite um, interesting because it's a time when, not long after the economic crash, Men are trying to kind of reassert themselves in society. Most men are having to go out to work for a living. And it's really about making men look a bit more powerful. And we've got lots of catalogues here showing these wonderful illustrations of men looking very dapper and elegant and looking like men, basically. And this is an exhibition about kind of how clothes make men as well as well as the kind of Jewish company. And the, the idea of clothes reflecting the, not only the economic climate, but the mood of the day. Yeah, You'll see that quite a lot. Once we get to the 60s, things become a lot more interesting. It's interesting. I'm looking at this particular double-breasted suit and it does seem that the shoulders are huge. Yes, they're huge and they really emphasise the chest and the shoulders. So it looks now we've got a leather jacket. Yeah, it's a suede, brown suede jacket and it was sold by Cecil G, who were a really important company in the 40s and 50s, just after the war. They start to make really stylish, fashionable clothing for men at a time of austerity and a time when men are kind of wearing demob suits and aren't, aren't particularly stylish. And what's quite um, interesting about Cecil G, he, he again was a Lithuanian immigrant who came to Britain. He set up in 1929 and... He started off in the East End but moved to the West End and his shops were quite near the kind of jazz clubs of Soho and so on. He had a lot of celebrity visitors and musicians. This particular jacket was actually worn by John Lennon. The Beatles were quite big fans of Cecil G. They visited the shop, they were photographed there and John bought this at the shop and he wore it during the recording of With the Beatles and during their 1963 tour. I'm fascinated by that and not only that, it looks so cool and modern and you'd almost wear it today it's very casual which is very different to what we have seen previously in the exhibition suddenly men can be casual they're much more informal and this is quite an american style as well we're really seeing the influence of american styles coming in this is the most wonderful jacket of nero style it's shiny and yellow and who would have made that and why 
It was made by Lord John, who were a Carnaby Street retailer. The shop was founded by brothers Warren and David Gold, and they were interesting because they were previously market traders, and then I think they saw the opportunity that Carnaby Street provided, um, and they were really good at responding to new trends. And what's quite interesting, this jacket dates from the late 60s, and probably it dates from just after the Beatles' trip to India, because at that point the Nero style really becomes popular for young people because it is actually very Indian style so you can imagine how the, the musical trend will affect the fashion exactly yeah and the red one looks like a soldier's jacket that's from a King's Road shop called Granny Takes a Trip as Carnaby Street started to become a bit more commercialised the hippie look kind of st- started to take hold and the kind of fashionable crowd moved towards King's Road and Granny Takes a Trip sold psychedelic hippie style clothing. This particular suit is beautiful, kind of bright red, and it's got um, this kind of braiding and it has a very military feel. Military, again, m- the military look was really coming into fashion in the late 60s. So overall, it's interesting how the suit took root 100 years ago and never seems to have gone away. Well, no, and also the last suit that we have here, which is from Top Man, this is actually from last year, 2015, you can see actually we've gone back to quite a conservative look, although this actual suit is a skinny suit, which Top Man introduced in 2004, and it's based on the mod style, so the styles are continually kind of coming back. Curator Liz Selby talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about the exhibition Moses, Mods and Mr Fish, which was on earlier in the year at the Jewish Museum in Camden. One of the other things that we love to focus on here on The Jewish Views is the sense of community and communities from around the world. In particular, Diana Toman got the chance to speak to historian Kinga Steranivska about a rather fascinating synagogue called the Walper Synagogue. Now, to tell us more about it, here is Kinga. Diana started by asking her where the original building came from. The original building came from Volpa, formerly a Polish town but now in Belarus. Volpa Synagogue was probably built in the first half of the 18th century. In 1929 was listed as a cultural monument, only to be burned down during the Second World War by Nazis. It is said the original temple was the most beautiful wooden synagogue in the Eastern Europe. And is the new synagogue that you're putting up, or have already put up, in the same style as the one in Volpa? Yes, exactly. It's the same style. It's it's just identical as Volpa Synagogue. Is it also made of wood? Yes, it's wooden synagogue. It's like 14 metres high. And, you know, all the outside stuff looks identically. So it's the same thing. To be honest, the same object where we had in, in, in Volpa. One question which I know everybody is going to ask, why was the synagogue rebuilt yeah. if there is no one there who's going to worship in it? In other words, no Jews yeah. are live in Bilgorai, I understand. Yes, there are actually no, no Jews left. But there's a couple of reasons why we decided to rebuild the synagogue exactly in Bilgorai. Because a synagogue is a part of wooden complex. We just wanted, you know, to show to the people how this kind of wooden architecture looked like before the war. Bilgorai was just burned down in 90%. Nothing left, really. 
So that was the main reason. And the second reason we was, we just wanted to commemorate the presence of Jewish people in Bulgaria. Just before the war, it was like 65% of Jewish, you know, population in Bulgaria, so quite a lot. And that's why we want to, you know, devote, devote our synagogue to the Jewish who lived in Bulgaria before the war. Who is the person who put the money up to rebuild the synagogue? Actually, we've got a couple of sources of the money. First of all, the person of Mr. Tadeusz Kuzminski. He's a chairman of our foundation, and he put his own money at the beginning. It was like 11 million zlotys, so it's like... That's a lot of money. Two uh, million pounds, it's, it's quite a lot of money anyway, for the beginning. And we also using some European funds to develop you know, our venture. There are a couple of local companies, like wine factories or furniture factories, and they also support us, you know, support our foundation. Have you any plans to rebuild perhaps parts of Bilgorai which have been destroyed by the war or have they already been restored? Yeah, we've got, you know, another plans. We want to rebuild like a little wooden Catholic church, a little wooden Tatar mosque and a wooden <laughs> Orthodox church as well. But the, the synagogue was, was our priority. It's very, very commendable. Who is going to maintain it and manage it once it's built and, and in full use? We don't really know who, who's going to be support us in the future. So uh, at the moment, um, there's a lot of you know, people that are interested in, in, in helping us you know, to continue our project. So it, it, it depends, really, <laughs> on future. Because if it's not maintained properly, it might fall into disrepair? I don't think so, to be honest. This, um, as I said, there's a lot of people, they, I just, they want to put some, you know, own donation to, to, to keep the project, to, um, to continue with this brilliant idea, I, I think. Kinga Staraniska talking to Diana Toman there about the Warpus Synagogue. Fascinating stuff. Well, one of the other people that Diana got to speak to this year was Simi Ben-Hur from Sharai Tzedek Hospital to find out all about the amazing work that her team do. I think it's fair to say that Jews are often widely associated with the medical profession and the Sharai Tzedek Hospital is a world leader in research and medical science. So Diana started by asking Simi to explain a little bit about how the hospital started. Well, the, the hospital started on Old Jaffa Road and it was actually a project of European Jews whose dream was to make a hospital in Jerusalem that anybody could get to regardless of their means to pay or their nationality or their origin. And 114 years later, their dream is the best possible success story I think Israel has at the moment. It's flourishing and we see everybody coming in from all walks of life. And there are miracles happening every day. And 
it's incredible to look at the pictures of the old Jaffa Road site where it was really very small, humble beginnings. And the ingenuity of Dr. Wallach and his team is something that has followed with every director general following that so during the war years where we had cows on site so that we had milk for the newborn babies which war are we talking about in the 60s right we had cows on site so that we could feed the babies milk because deliveries weren't coming into Jerusalem when there was a battle over Jerusalem and it's stories like that that really make the building come alive and it's much more than just the walls of a hospital but it's the people in it that make Sharid Sadek so special. So talking about the people in it We've now got this wonderful supplement which is covering three or four of the principles, if you like, in the medical unit. And could we talk a little bit about them? Let's start with this amazing man who's walked through the door, one of the doctors, on crutches. So Dr. Asael Lebetsky is the cover star of the supplement this week and it's an incredible image to see a doctor on crutches and you immediately want to know why. And he was injured in the Second Lebanon War very badly and was fighting for his life. And he's written a book about his experiences being injured, fighting for his life and deciding to then want to become a man that saves other people's lives. And he's now a practicing paediatrician at Shari Tzedek. And what makes him such a special doctor isn't just the tremendous challenges he's overcome to get to where he is today but the fact that when sick children come into hospital with all their anxiety and their parents anxiety about their illness that when they see a doctor who's on crutches or in a wheelchair they know that he knows their pain and there is this empathy without saying any words that is immediately created that makes his relationship with his patients so special. Of course it must. And then we move on to somebody I suspect is equally eminent, the trauma chief. That makes him sound extremely important. Is he not based at the hospital? Does he go outside the hospital? He is. So Dr. Ofer Marin is the deputy director of Sharid Sedek and he's the head of the trauma unit. So whenever you hear about terror attacks and any kind of trauma incidents like car accidents or anything else, he's leading that team. But he also has a very important responsibility in the IDF running the field hospital. So whenever you hear that Israel has gone overseas to support medically victims of tsunamis and earthquakes and flooding, it's Dr. Marin and his team that go. And he was actually in Nepal last year. Israel sent one of the biggest delegations of any country in the world and Sharid Sedek sent the biggest delegation of any hospital. And that even included the director of the hospital, Professor Halevi. This is after the earthquake? This was after the earthquake. Right. It, yes, there is this wonderful photograph of him sitting in front of a field tent. He's an incredible full man. uniform, yes. He's an incredible man because he is dealing with life and death decisions in seconds. And he takes those decisions in a very cool, calm way. And there's a wonderful film on the Sharid Zedek website of him talking about life in the trauma unit over a 96-hour period during the terror attacks last year at their height. 
And there are just some amazing stories of miraculous recoveries and tragedy as well. And the way that the team deal with anything that comes through the doors is not just professional, but they have such a connection with their patients long after they stop being patients. And that's what makes Sharid Sadek known as the hospital with a heart. This is aftercare, yeah. yes. Doctors give out their mobile numbers. We had one terror victim years ago who was an American tourist who when she flew back to America after she'd had life-saving surgery her surgeon actually flew on the plane with her to Chicago to make sure she was okay. Good heavens that's incredible. So Simbi that's the trauma team tell me about the head nurse. So the head nurse in the emergency department is an amazing man who you'll see in the supplement is a big statuesque figure and what makes him so interesting is that he is an Arab citizen of Israel who took a huge interest in Holocaust victims and took himself off to Auschwitz to learn more about those experiences and was so touched by the people that he met that he is now the only registered Arab tour guide that gives tours on the Holocaust in Israel. And his first tour was for the Jewish and Arab staff at Shari Tzedek. And it just gives you an example of the kinds of people that work at Shari Tzedek. The director general says, you have to be good at medicine. You have to have a good side bedside manner. But if you're not a mensch, you don't get a job there. And it comes across with absolutely everybody that works. I can just see that. Yes, that's that really is incredible. Anything else that you think makes for the success of this fantastic hospital? Well, what's so special is that Sharid Sedek's reputations and successes transcend the walls of the hospital. So the research work that we do, for example, is impacting globally every day. The head of the Genetic Research Institute was on the team that discovered the BRCA1 and 2 breast cancer mutation. And she's now leading very eminent research into the link between BRCA and Alzheimer's as well as breast cancer. And she's led calls around the world for universal screening for Ashkenazi women because of the high prevalence of breast cancer in the community. So we don't just practice medicine for the people in our hospital, but we take responsibility for making sure that people around the world are being looked after carefully as well. Yes, we know that Israel's right up there in the in the vanguard of that. Exactly. Now, Simi, I mean, all these wonderful things that the hospital is doing presumably needs money. How is it funded and is there any way that the UK can help? So the real secret to our success is our supporters around the world. The hospital gets no government funding to pay for equipment, development of the departments or research. And it's been supported for nearly 80 years now by British donors. And we're very grateful for everything that people give every year. And this year has been a very critical year with a rise in terror incidents, with growth in departments. We have a brand new children's hospital and we have a new stroke unit that's just opening now and the decisions we make every day that are saving lives are funded by those donations and we hope that this Rosh Hashanah people will continue to support Shari Zedek and people that didn't know about us before will read the supplement feel inspired and will support us. Simi Ben-Hur from Sharaid Sedek Hospital talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about the incredible work that her team do.
Well, of course, one of the major features of the Jewish views is the Jewish schmooze, and we couldn't possibly let one of our best of go without having a schmooze discussion. This time, we join Clive Roslin and Adam Bradley right in the middle of talking to Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschkorn about Tikkun Olam, or of course, making the world a better place. Clive asked Andy, "What should we be doing to help those who need it most?" We do an awful lot. Especially in my synagogue, with collections for homeless, for food banks, and all that sort of thing. So we can only do so much. It's an insurmountable task to look after everybody and everything. You have to limit your resources and limit what you can do. You can't open it. To Absolutely, everybody, as much as we would love to. But you, for example, do an awful lot of doing things for people in need, don't you? I do, but it comes from within, doesn't it? And that's practical. It's not. It's not a financial thing. It's not anything else. It's a practical thing, and I also get feedback from that. I get a response from that. Well, that's exactly what the chief rabbi is asking us to do, isn't it? Don't you think? I'm not sure because he's asking us to go. Abroad and look at other people. I personally think that charity begins at home. Liz, you know, what maybe do you Israel. Well, I think yes, as Andy says, it does begin at home, and I think also doing things for Israel. But I think it's a it's a never ending thing, isn't it? And I think it's more than just raising money. It's actually giving your time, going to visit people, helping people do shopping, and the synagogues. I think are a great sort of the heart of this. It's very interesting as you both say this, you see, because I remember, and unfortunately I can't remember the name of it, but there's a very, very famous Jewish charity which was fantastic because everything it did was not for Jews. It was for everybody else. And they went and did work. They gave money and they went and did work for other people, exactly what the chief was asking. I think that is Tikkun Olam. To me, that's the true essence of Tikkun Olam because I think we sometimes get too caught up in our own worlds, our own Jewish world. And I think there's often causes problems with the outside world because people often think, oh, the Jews keep to themselves, they keep the money to themselves, they only do things for themselves. And I think Tikkun Olam is such an opportunity for every Jew to get out there and actually show... We care about the world. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about Jews. But we we do because whenever there's a catastrophe somewhere in the world, the Israelis are one of the first to actually go there. And it's true that we do tend to raise a lot of money for Jewish charities. But then who else does? Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying exclusively we should go outside, but I, I think we should definitely have as much focus on the outside world as we do on Jewish issues. Well, I think we do, and especially sort of at times like Christmas and you know when the staff that need the time off from work, the Jewish people, a lot of Jewish people go into hospitals and things, and they help and do what the normal staff would do. Obviously not qualified nurses, but they do meals and they do all sorts of things. And we do meals on wheels. There's an awful lot of things that Jewish people do. It's part of their neshama, I think, because they do... I think it's inherently built into us to do voluntary and social work. I don't know why, but I, I just think that 
we do this. I think that's quite interesting as well, though, that you say that because Tikkun Olam originally, I think it's it was in the mission like a couple of thousand years ago where it was first mentioned, was based on Jews being able to sort out things like a get social injustices within the Jewish community. It was just it was just focused on internal issues just to fix things that socially were broken. Sort of in the last 40, 50 years, and, and, and strangely, it all ties in with the kind of the 60s and 70s peace and love, where Tik and Alon had uh, sort of rejuvenated again. And it's now become more like a humanitarian attitude. So it's almost not really that Jewish anymore because humanitarianism is such a big thing. And, and it's, I wonder if, if part of that change in Tik and Alon has something to do with guilt. Because I know a lot of humanitarianism from sort of Western culture is based on guilt from slavery, guilt from oppression, guilt from colonialism. And I wonder if that's why Tikkun Olam is where it is. It's spread out outwards so much. I think in times of need, people do rally round. So, you know, when when things happen... I mean, like with the flooding, for example, you know, so many people have volunteered to help clear up people's homes and and offer them a place to sleep. And, you know, so when when there's so much going on in the world, I think it, it does bring out some good in people. You know, it's easy for people to make a donation. You know, most people, they're quite happy to give a small donation or a big donation, but to actually get out and do some actual things to help people. That's it, exactly. That's much harder to do. But it's what the Almighty said, isn't it? He said that all these people are my people, and you must help all these people. People are happy to put their hands into their pockets. This is fine, but there's not enough people actually physically doing the work. People need to actually get off their bottoms, and it's not always the money, you know, because there are a lot of people out there that cannot afford to donate any amount of money, but they are happy to give their time. It's also donating your time to be able to help people, you know. But the other thing is, going back to the floods, the Israelis have actually come over and helped the people in the floods, mm. which is phenomenal. You know, they're the always the first people. Why don't the Israelis make more publicity of that? I mean, it's good PR. It's excellent PR. Same in Haiti. They're the first people there. They set up a, a portable hospital with the Israelis. They have also got a great number of uh, Syrian refugees living yes, in Israel. Yes, absolutely. Moment, but this never gets publicised. You know, they do an awful lot and they, it doesn't get publicised. I wonder if that's something to do with the fact that we keep hearing the term a light unto the nations. But that light unto the nations is often not by force. It's just by example. And I, I get the feeling that this whole idea of the Israelis going out and helping, they don't make a big thing about it for that very reason that it's just setting the example. That is the essence, though, isn't it? When yeah. you do good deeds, you don't actually broadcast them. You just do them. But in terms of Israel and the press that Israel gets, I think it would be a very good idea if this were made more public. It doesn't, Absolutely. though, does it? Because it's always the negative that we hear on the news about Israel. Well, exactly, but it, it couldn't be negative if if it were made more known that the Israelis were doing these, that, these things. Couldn't that be seen as 
that we're doing it for the wrong reasons then, that we're just doing it for, well, exactly. for show and for... It'll and get twisted exactly. somehow to, to something So maybe like we that. are yeah. better off it. just doing this it without it. making a big noise about it. There must be a reason for it. And uh, to be honest, that makes a lot of sense, mm. what you've just said. Well, we should all be doing it, not just Israel. That's right. Everybody should be doing it, whether they're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever they are. They, they should be going out and helping other people. But very few people do. No, I think people do. I think generally people are good and helpful, more than not. I think I, it must be. I still think it's a minority of people. I think you're quite right. It is a minority of people, but there are more and more now people coming in and doing things for other people. I we think don't it's always a growing hear thing. everything no. that, that everybody does. But it, everything... it's, like, it's like mitzvah day. Isn't it? If you think about yeah. Mitzvah Day, that has now spread from being an American Jewish thing. It's now spread to all sorts of people. And that is the perfect example, it really is, of, of Tikkun Olam, of being a light unto the nations, is doing it by example. Absolutely. And others following, but seeing th this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we're being a bit provincial about this because <laughs> the chief rabbi has gone to India to help the poor in India, and I'm not suggesting everybody here should get up and go to India or go to Pakistan or go wherever there is trouble, but isn't it necessary to do more things around the world to help, to make it really seem that life is better with your help? That's, that's a beautiful thought, but it's very idealistic. I've actually, I have been to India, and I've, I've seen the beggars, and I've been chased by the beggars and it's you know where would you begin and what do you do you know if you're if you've got your life here what do you do give it up and go there and try and no, help? But you can still go and try and help do a bit for say a week or two or whatever it would be better rather than actually going out is to teach the people there how to help themselves that is ticking along. Well, that's that's right. exactly it. That's yeah. one of the highest levels. But how do right. you do that? How do you do that? Well, you have to obviously have a certain amount of people who are trained. Farmers and anybody, nurses, doctors, anybody who is able to show people there how they can do and what they should be doing, you know, how they should be doing it. Growing crops, having clean water. They need to be shown so that they can then carry on and do it for themselves. And this is exactly what we heard earlier in the programme from the woman from Sedek, who said exactly that. The, the way that we can move forward is to support people in helping themselves. And if you help one person that, to be able to help themselves, they'll help another 10 people. And, and so it goes how on. how do we actually get down to the ordinary people like us? How do we get down to doing that? It needs to be organised, though. I mean, we've always said that, that that's the way to help people, especially, you know, where there's famine, to teach them how to grow crops and how to look after themselves. But that needs to be organised, though. That has to be taken in hand and still needs finances to get that going. Well, you, it's interesting you say this because Prince Harry recently has been going around the world doing just that. He's been going around helping people in difficult circumstances and helping them to get better and do things for them and to show how to do things. So if, if, a, if a prince can do it, why can't people with children who have their gap year, if you like, say to their children, go and do this? I think oh, he's got a bit more time and do. money to do it, though. Than and most and of they us. do show celebrities going to 
various areas and, and doing some good building schools or, or whatever. But so there, there are these great examples, but then they're not always being followed by everybody. And there are a lot of kids who go on their gap year, or who used to go on their gap year, who actually did do that. I know a couple that one was training to be a nurse and she went out to some godforsaken place in Africa and she was helping people with with AIDS and stuff like that. I know two or three people that have done that. I think people are getting put off by it, though. I think so. I think so. On the other hand, when you think of all those, this awful illness which was happening in, in, I can't remember what it's called. Ebola. 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 Yeah. What about that? Because there were an awful lot of people, medical people, nurses and doctors who went out to places like Nigeria. It It wasn't Nigeria, was it? It was was West Africa. West Africa, Senegal. Senegal and places like that. They went there and... endangered their own lives. I think that does put people off. And also when you apply to go to these places, they give you such an extensive list of vaccinations and and not all of them are that necessary. And these sort of things put people off, I think. Or or people are becoming more selfish. But isn't this exactly the reason we're here? I know it's it's getting a bit deep, but isn't Tikkun Olam a whole reason for being? Because I personally think it is, because looking at it from a biblical perspective, I mean, Adam and Eve, Adam sinned, and the world became a very different place. And there are thoughts that Adam had to sin, so that we had a reason to be here to fix the world. So everything we do is actually trying to achieve that Garden of Eden status of this paradise. So, so what you're really saying is that Judaism is tikkun olam. Humanity well, is in fact the whole world olam. is. Yeah. I do feel as part of being Jewish, that is part of my purpose. Well, that's where we have to leave it for that particular schmooze discussion and indeed for this episode of The Jewish Views and The Jewish Views for 2016. Thank you very much to not just the guests who have appeared in this episode, but the guests from all of the episodes over the last year. We really do appreciate it. But thanks in particular for this one to Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis. Also, we had former Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, Dana International, Dan Kaner, Liz Selby, Kinga Stalinivska, Simi Ben Hur and also the Schmooze team included Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschkorn. Thanks also to all of you at home for listening. We do appreciate your loyalty and companionship over the past year. Here's to 2017 and many more still to come. But just before we do disappear off for the rest of the year, I should let you know that things don't always go according to plan here on The Jewish Views. Well, not for us on the presentation team anyway. Egypt's foreign minister has paid a rare visit to Jerusalem to try to revive the prospect of a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. Sameh Shukri's trip was the first official visit to Israel since 2017. Okay, so it's not very fair that I pick on Viv because, frankly, she's probably one of the more professional in the team. Me, on the other hand, Nikki Tiefenbrun and Ennis... Nikki Tiefenbrun and... Sake, excuse me. Nikki Tiefenbrun and no, it's not Broom, you idiot. It's Brun. N. Come on. Nikki Tiefenbrun and Emma Spitzer talking to Kate Fulton there, giving us a taster. See what I did there? Of this year's Gefilte Fest. 
And I think we better leave it there before I embarrass myself any further. I do need to thank our team, including our producers, Sue Greenberg and Adam Bradley. Don't forget, you can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. I would like to say on a personal level that I am truly grateful myself to everyone who makes this show possible. Each week, you wouldn't believe the army of us that make this program happen. So thank you from me to you guys. You know who you are. Don't forget that we are in association with The Jewish News and we are part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. We would like to wish you and your family all the best for 2017. We very much look forward to you joining us in the new year where hopefully we'll keep you up to date with all of the Jewish news stories that you need to hear. I'm Phil Dave. Goodbye.